2: This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Family
1: Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio.
0: Some people's questions and comments pricked like a splinter. No blood lost, but sticking under my skin. Others burned in my chest so hard I could barely speak the rest of the day. I was never Latina enough, Dominican enough, American enough, Chinese enough. Even the fetishizing and backhanded compliments left bruises. Chinese? Oh, that's where you get your cheekbones and your brains. Sexy blend, best of both worlds. You're like a mutt. Mutts are smarter and better than other dogs. Dogs. I can't tell you how many times white people thought they were complimenting me using references to dog breeding. Identity shouldn't be such pain. It shouldn't be about playing an exhausting defense to simply exist on par with the majority culture. It means that the default, white, is best. And you are less, always. I just wanted to live and feel good about who I was. All my parts.
3: That's Carmen Rita Wong. Radio, television, and online journalist. Personal finance expert and author of the memoir, Why Didn't You Tell Me? Carmen's is a story about race, identity, secrecy, and all the ways our lives are formed by what we don't yet know. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others and the secrets we keep from ourselves.
0: The landscape of my childhood actually centered on two places. So the beginning, I started in Harlem. I had a Dominican mother and a Chinese father. And that was the first landscape where I was surrounded by family, immigrants from the Dominican Republic, uh, my cousins. We came in all shades that we come in uh, as Dominicans. And also my father at the time, Poppy Wang, who was a Chinese immigrant. And he would take us down to Chinatown all the time. So it was a, a very rich landscape to start in. Growing up with Poppy, with this Chinese father who was essentially a Chinese gangster, <laughs> which I didn't discover till decades later. Um, very slick, hustler, businessman type. Super charming. I joke. I learned my hustle from him. He's he was so charming. He would take my brother and I all dressed up, especially on Sundays. And Sundays was the best day because my grandmother, my abuela, would dress us up in the finest clothes you could <laughs> you could have at tiny ages. And a little fur chubby coat she made me from, you know, remnants from, uh, she was a seamstress for Oscar de la Renta. And she made me these things to dress us up for Chinatown, for Poppy because when he would show up in his big car, a car in New York City, a big, you know, obnoxious car, sedan, bring us downtown, the restaurant that we would go to on a Sunday was very different from the Chinese restaurants we would go to during the week. Chinatown, during the week, the visits were to the basement restaurants with the duck in the window, right? Which I loved, by the way, absolutely loved. But on the weekend, it was the very fancy, enormous restaurants that take up like a whole floor. And they're filled with gold and red and actually have white tablecloths. And there was a dais where the most important people, the VIPs, got to sit up on the dais. And Poppy would take my brother and I, who we were just little brown children with black curly hair, um, <laughs> who didn't look very much like him, you know, have us trailing behind him and take us up to to introduce us to the Don, basically his boss uh, of the gang and just kind of brag about us. And it was very cute, but it felt, made us feel important. It made us feel valued, even though he was not a very good father, to be honest. We got the message from my grandmother especially, really doting on us, and then Poppy Wong bringing us and parading us around, that we had value. And that was really, really important. So that's one big lesson he gave to us. And then the second landscape was when my mother divorced Poppy and remarried an Anglo-American gentleman who my stepfather moved us out of the city to New Hampshire which in the late 70s and early 80s was, could have been the moon. (laughs) I might as well have landed on another planet compared to the first landscape of my life. It was more than suburban, rural, all-white landscape that we were quite alien in.
3: So it was your stepdad, Marty, who you eventually began to call dad, and your older brother, Alex? Yes. And your mother, uh, Lupe, and yourself? Mm -hmm. Yes. What was that like for you growing up in that landscape in which you and your mom and your brother just looked different from everybody around you?
0: Growing up as a kid in New Hampshire, you know, around essentially people who it wasn't just about the color, it wasn't just the fact that it was whiteness and we were brown and, you know, basically light skinned black people were Chinese as well, it was culture. It was literally everything from the way my mother dressed me, the way she dressed or done her hair or the food um, language. We weren't allowed to speak Spanish anymore at home or eat Latin food or Chinese food. Any kind of ethnicity at all was very much erased. It was the first place too. I mean, that was the internal process was, you know, all the things that I had known were suddenly told that I wasn't allowed to be those things anymore. And there's that feeling too of being othered, which is something I had never experienced up until that point. Nor my mother, even though she was an immigrant, she came to a community in New York City where so many people were just like her all around the city. But in this place, there was nobody like us. So it was the first time we were othered and it didn't come with good feelings. I didn't know it was bad or wrong or lesser than to be brown or ethnic or black or whatever else. And it was a hard lesson to learn that that's the way it is in some places. Hair to African-American women is incredibly important. It's it's a soul thing, right? It's a really about identity um, and pride and my mother, you know, being of african descent, she had been straightening her hair for a long time, which was, you know, typical. Dominicans are known for how they straighten hair so well because the hair is so mixed. But in New Hampshire, you know, she really felt the pressure to erase any um outward signs of her african ancestry. So her hair was straightened, it was put in a bun every day and she was kind of chafing a couple of years in chafing at all the erasure she started sneaking in spanish music when marty wasn't home she found a market that actually sold things like yuca cassava and she would bring that home and boil it or plantains she'd go way out of her way to find some and do it when he wasn't there and one day we kids were at home and she walked in the door I had been left alone with the kids which was totally normal um for an 11 year old to be left with four babies including newborn she came home and instead of her pulled tight back straight bun she had a short auburn afro and i thought it was amazing i was like shocked and in awe and she had seen it like that earlier that week on someone she loved rita moreno was on Sesame Street and of course we kids all watched that and Rita Moreno had a short Auburn afro and my mother just fell in love with it she came home with that my first reaction was oh my gosh this is amazing it felt rebellious it felt exciting it felt very authentic and then the second reaction was oh no and my gut just dropped because I realized that this was going to be somehow conflict. And she was very happy. I talked to her about her hair. I said, it looked beautiful, all these things. And then Marty came home and he took a look at her in silence and gestured for her to go upstairs with him. And um, she came back down by herself, maybe 20 minutes later with a scarf covering her hair. And she kept that scarf on her head until her hair was long enough to pull it back again into a bun.
3: Mm, If ever a hairstyle was a metaphor.
0: Yes, very much so. And the message I received as a kid was, don't be yourself.
3: After Carmen and her family moved to New Hampshire, her mother and her stepdad, Marty, have four kids together, all girls, in quick succession. Carmen's mother is a mercurial woman. She's incredibly loving and caring, but she also has a real temper. Her rage just seems to ignite and explode at the slightest provocation. At one point, Carmen and her brother Alex even call her Dragon Lady.
0: I really worked hard and over the years to see my mother as not a villain, to really humanize her because for decades, I was sincerely angry at the, I'll say it, trauma and abuse that we endured, and the role that she put me in as essentially a mother. I was parentified, or parentified, so I became a parent. I was also taking care of her and Marty psychologically and in many ways, and I really resented that. So it was very, very difficult. My mother wasn't the most affectionate person, loving person. She was very much about, do as I say, you know, keep your head down, don't cry, don't be angry, don't have emotions, that sort of thing, don't rattle me. So it was a lot of walking on eggshells. And it got worse, because in New Hampshire, she was completely isolated from her family, from her culture, from everything she knew, and her world simply consisted of that house and all those babies um, and Marty. And the trouble is, is that my mother, as I got to know her, really examining her life and and looking at her, she was incredibly ambitious, intelligent. I found boxes of her writing, which was pretty amazing for someone whose education stopped at 15. And she was frustrated that she was basically living her life through her reproductive organs and she took it out on us. The dragon lady part was that she pushed and pushed my brother and I academically to our wits end. We also had to work as well. I was working 20, 30 hours a week in high school and get straight A's and take care of the kids. All of these things she pushed and pushed. Yes, because of course immigrant parents, they want the best for you, but she also resented the freedom I had to dream and plan and leave and live a life. So I felt the brunt of that resentment often. Back then, here's the thing, you grew up with this kind of a little embarrassing, boisterous, over-the-top, slick rick Chinese father, and then you go to New Hampshire where you have this graduate school-educated, you know, Anglo father who exposes you to cars and chopping wood and the stock market and all of these things that American culture says are the best things, right? So I had this contrast, and I also wanted to be part of this new family where he and my mother had my four little sisters. I didn't like feeling like I wasn't part of that. So I really tried to get close to Marty. Marty. You know, his head was behind the Wall Street Journal and I'd ask him about, you know, the stock. What's a stock and what's this? And it all served me great professionally. But um, I always still felt on the outside. Moving to New Hampshire, we would drive back to New York at least four times a year. I say, I joke, I say it's like once a quarter. So once a quarter, usually on holidays and long weekends, my mother would pile all of us babies. Marty would stay home during school breaks, and pile us all in the van, the minivan, and go back down to the city trolled apartment and stay with our, our grandparents. And that's where we would see Poppy again. And his thing was, is he would show up, you know, take us, of course, again to Chinatown, but he would show up and he'd have like a wad, a roll of bills, if we were lucky. It was a roll, which meant he was flush, you know, and he would take off bills and be like, you want one, you want two, you know and give us spending money, which would end up in my mother's pocket, but that's fine. Uh, (laughs) He had to take care of us somehow. But he really showed us a whole other world. And that kept up. And I'm telling you, Chinatown for us was essentially home for Poppy, even though he lived in other Chinatowns. Um, When I was an adult, he lived in the Chinatown by Sunset Park in, in Brooklyn. He really kept us close to that identity on purpose.
3: There's a lot Carmen doesn't know or understand about poppy. When Carmen is 16, her mother sits down on her bed one evening while she's studying. Her mother is holding a crumpled Kleenex in her hand. She's been crying. Carmen's stomach is in knots because she knows something big is coming. And then her mother says, your poppy has been arrested.
0: I just couldn't believe it. I I, I didn't understand it. At all. I mean, when you're 16, a teenager and somebody says a parent has been arrested and you know it's very bad, you have a feeling, it's bad, it creates such a storm in your brain. I didn't know how to comprehend what I was hearing. And she made it worse by telling me that he had been picked up with my brother, who had just graduated, the first in the family to finish high school for Pete's sake and graduate from college. She just graduated from Georgetown. University And he really was, a. when I talk about straight and narrow, this guy was straight edge, as we used to say. And I felt so bad for him. And thankfully, they let him off. But my mother told me he'd been arrested um, for transporting drugs.
3: Your brother, Alex, had absolutely no idea what was going on. He was just
0: absolutely no he was idea. in the wrong
3: place um, at the wrong time just being with Poppy
0: yeah poor alex (laughs) part of the reason why they let him go so quickly was because the poor man boy i mean he was only like 22 21 was crying so much he was so shaken up he had no idea because the thing is is that we knew poppy wong as someone who made jewelry costume jewelry that went to places like macy's and bloomingdale you know all the earrings and bracelets and all that stuff Basically, Chinese immigrant women would put the jewelry together, he would transport it in these boxes, and Alex and I always got, you know, the extra stuff. Like, I loved, I got boxes of extra jewelry. Well, my brother didn't know that underneath that jewelry sometimes were drugs. And he had absolutely no idea. And he, Poppy was like, oh, go, you know, go on a run with me. I have to go drop something off before we have dinner. And my brother was like, oh, okay. Okay and thank God he got out. But it was devastating for us, not just because we then couldn't see Bobby for years because he was convicted, but because he had been the source of money to support my brother and I. Marty was not supporting Alex and and I, and uh, I was heading to college myself, and all of a sudden I had no money. Marty was not supporting my brother and I at all. Besides, we were living in the same house, we had our bedrooms, we had food to eat, that sort of thing. Anything like clothes, school tuition, any of that stuff came from Poppy. So I asked my mother, why? You know, we lived in the house with him, Like, and and they were divorced, and I was curious. And I don't know why I felt entitled to it, frankly, <laughs> as a stepfather. But I think as a kid, I just assumed, well, you know, I call you dad now and, I, you know, we're here. Help us out. But my mother said that Marty had no responsibility for my brother and I. And she wouldn't let him have responsibility for us. It was just Poppy. So when he was put away, all of a sudden I was completely supporting myself from the age of 16.
2: We'll be right back. any disease.
1: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
3: In a couple of years, Carmen goes off to college, and the situation with Marty becomes even more tenuous. He loses his job, doesn't find a new one for many years. And eventually, he and Carmen's mother divorce.
0: Things were getting really bad at home between my mother and Marty, and it was severely affecting my younger sisters. I really felt for them, and we would talk sometimes late at night on the phone and say, oh my gosh, if we could only adopt them, take them out of the house and adopt them, because the anger in that house was so toxic my mother kind of went free on her own way and started traveling and being her own person and all that and marty kind of went downhill we had been very close and um it wasn't as good as i would have liked it to be but we kept talking of course he was you know my stepdad my dad and my sister's dad Poppy was incarcerated for quite a few years, uh, at least until my 20s. He made it out to a halfway house for a couple of years. And then by my early 20s, he was back in our life and I was back to living in the city after college. And he was back to calling me up and saying he's going to take me to Chinatown. And he had oranges and frozen shrimp to give to me and (laughs) all these sort of things, wanting to connect. So as I became an adult and I reconnected with Poppy uh, once he was free and working again, I was the only kid in the city. I was the only one in the family who came back. My brother moved out to the suburbs with his wife and and daughter. And it was up to me to be, you know, the devoted child and take care of our father and all of that, even though Alex came back and, and hung out with us quite a bit. But so I got to know Poppy more and more. And I spent a lot of time also with him and my brother together and all three of us. And sometimes Poppy could be way too much to handle, way too, you know, just like my mother, no boundaries, you know, whatsoever. And I just started to notice, or I started to look at him and look at my brother and not understand where I fit. I've always been super close to my brother, but he's always been more, we call it Chino-Latino, right? Is, is when you're both Asian and Latino. So we were both Chino-Latino, and I used to joke that he was the Chino and I was the Latino, Latina. Because I was much more Dominican and he was much more Chinese. But I something was gnawing at me that I couldn't put my finger on, that I just felt somehow that there was a... A piece missing. I was looking for where Poppy lived in me. It wasn't that I was looking for being Chinese. The culture was there. The ethnicity was there. I'm talking about like the human being of Peter, which was what his name was, Peter Wong. Where was he in me? His attitude, his personality, his temper, his um, jokes, like all these sort of things. Where was it? And um, I couldn't find it. And that's where kind of the seed was planted, that something was up. I was also going through my own turmoil of relationships and a divorce in my 20s and all these things happening. I had just been through a awful, devastating divorce, or a starter marriage, as I call it, to a upwardly mobile Latino gentleman. We, we matched on that upwardly mobile thing, and unfortunately, that was all we had in common. But... I was heartbroken, but I was on my own. I had my own apartment in Washington Heights. I was going to graduate school at Columbia University Teachers College, which is something I'd always dreamed of.
3: During this time, already dealing with so much tumult and emotional difficulty, Carmen gets a call from her brother Alex, which brings forth even more. He says he has something very important to tell her. Their mother... Has joined an evangelical church. In her conversion process, she's been told she must share her sins. So she tells Alex that she had had three abortions, two before Carmen was born and one after.
0: My brother and I, were, we were just shocked. And we were just like, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? And something went click in my head. And I said, oh, my God, why was she having these abortions? She must have been having an affair. And my brother was like, oh, no, no, you know, no, she wouldn't have done that. She wouldn't have done that. And I couldn't get out of my head the idea that there was something she was hiding and that she had been having an affair. I didn't know what it meant at the time. I didn't, I just knew that something had happened for her to do something like that. Very drastic.
3: And how did that knowledge sit with you? You know, that, that feeling that we sometimes have of knowing something, but not knowing it?
0: Yes, The feeling of knowing something and not knowing it is probably one of the most common feelings I've had most of my life. Because if you grow up with parents who are quite, um, to use a non-technical, narcissistic, right? You don't necessarily get to know yourself, really. It's all kind of buried in there because you're performing to please your parents and to keep things copacetic in the house. But this feeling was there. And I knew it because it was familiar. And it didn't sit well because I was in the middle of a really tumultuous, but also time of self-discovery. There I was in Washington Heights, again, living amongst the people I had known when I was a child. It was a Dominican community. And I felt very held in this community. It was a bit of nostalgia, but it was also comfort. Um, we looked after each other. I knew that people were looking after me and, and watching me, you know, when I would leave and come back and, and make sure I was okay, that sort of thing, because I lived by myself. It felt good. And then I was back at Columbia, which we walked by all the time when I was a kid. So all these things were reconnecting, but there was this big hole. And I, I just, look, <laughs> there was a reason why I went into media and journalism. I always want to find things out. Always. So I I really felt this kind of urge building that I had to to figure things out. I hadn't spoken to my mother in two years because I couldn't, I couldn't be sane. (laughs) I was already, you know, very distraught having been divorced and kind of all these feeling like a failure and, I'm going to graduate school, but the stress of money is just absolutely incredible. And I'm drowning under student loan debt, and I have rent to pay, and I'm on my own and by myself. And so it was a very distressing time, and she just would not let me breathe. Everything I did was wrong. Everything. The divorce was wrong. The way I answered the phone was wrong. The way I dressed is wrong. It was relentless. My phone would ring and then you know her voice was like a hiss. And it was, what are you doing, and and why haven't you done this, and why don't you do this? But she wanted to come over, and she wanted me to take her out to eat and go shopping and all of these things. And I, I just couldn't breathe. So I had to be away from her for a while and not communicate with her for a while.
3: And then another phone call. This time, it's Carmen's sister with more news about their mother.
0: One day I'm coming home, I ended up in a job in media after graduate school, and I'm, I'm coming home from a business trip in Boston, and my phone rings, and it's one of my sisters who doesn't talk very much to all of us, and she said, mom's in the hospital, in the emergency room, she has stage four cancer. And I find out that, you know, the reason she was riddled with tumors, I mean, you could see them if you took off her clothes and none of us saw her kind of wasting away slowly because she had been layering clothes on herself and we just couldn't see anything. They gave her two months to live and I went into reporter mode, which I I was at the time and and got her in a drug trial for Gleevec actually, which is incredibly successful and she lived for a while. I wanted to help my mother, of course, because I still loved her just because I wasn't talking to her. And, it would, you know, it doesn't mean, you know, you love your parents, even if they're really traumatic. But I really went into reporter mode to try to give her more time because she was my sister's mother. My four younger sisters, though our relationship was contentious because I had to be a parent when I was a child myself. And, you know, children don't make very good parents. <laughs> um, I loved them with all my heart at the time and they were in so much pain and I did not want them to have their mother die.
3: And then another phone call. This time it's Marty.
0: The next phone call (laughs) that changed my world was soon after the diagnosis my stepfather Marty called me and said he desperately needed to talk to me. And it certainly felt like these weird dominoes of life falling, you know, one after the other, which is funny. You know, Dominicans love dominoes. We love it. So it was one after the other, after the other. And come to find out that Marty had a girlfriend at the time who was um, working at the local university. He was in Rhode Island, who said to him, you cannot let Carmen's mother die without Carmen knowing the truth. And so he told me that... um, Poppy Wong was not my father. So Marty not only tells me that Poppy was not my father, which is the way he, you know, started this reveal, but actually he didn't even say, I'm your father. I was the one who said, so who's my father? And I was already crying. I was crying like, really just bawling instantly at the news, and he just nodded his head. He couldn't say it. He just nodded his head, and I said, it's you. It's been you this whole time. I tell you, there is no pain like that. It is just such a very specific pain to be lied to in that way, especially when I lived under the same roof as this man from the time I was five years old.
3: Yeah. Well, and it reshuffles and changes all of the relationships um, instantly. Um, He was your father, not your stepfather. The daughters that he had with your mother are your sisters, not your half-sisters. This means that Alex is your half-brother, not your full brother. But more than anything, the knowledge that they held, both your mother and Marty, and didn't feel that you had a right to know or a need to know?
0: Yeah, I mean, the pain is so layered, of course. You know, it was kind of losing, in a sense. My brother, even though I hadn't, but I always felt I was 100% his sister. We were—we called each other the Wonder Twins. You know, we were that close and always were that close. And then it supposedly made me full siblings with my sisters. But I tell you, the two greatest pains were, one, the loss in terms of being racially Chinese. Because, of course, there's race and there's culture. I may not be biologically Chinese, but um, I will always be a Wong. Always. That's how I was raised. But it still felt like a cleaving, like a real kind of cutting out of a piece of me a community a history a legacy that was enormous um so that was an incredible pain and then two to know that your parents have kept such a lie when i had wanted so bad as a child to be accepted into this new family that my mother had with marty i wanted so badly to be one of those four girls that hurt like nothing else.
3: We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets.
5: disease.
1: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.
3: So after not speaking to or seeing her mother for two years, Carmen drives up to New Hampshire where her mother's living in an apartment. Two of her younger sisters meet her there. This is the first time Carmen has seen her mother since the cancer diagnosis, and she's stunned by the transformation. Her mother is very sick, wasting away. This is painful for Carmen to see, of course. But she's on a mission. She's here to find out the
0: truth. We all sat there at the big table, which was our former dining table in the house in New Hampshire that she brought to the apartment and the chairs and I sat at the head of the table, which was a bit symbolic, but I did it on purpose. <laughs> and uh, just asked her flat out, or told her flat out what Marty had told me. And I told her to tell me the truth about what had happened. I was 31 years old. And um, up until that point, you know, had been Papi Wong's daughter and had thought I knew where I came from and my mother's story. And uh, she, of course, burst out crying. and was very angry, very angry, which was a normal response, by the way, for my mother for things that she didn't have control over. It was anger. She said, this was for me to tell, not for him to tell. This was for me to tell. And I just waved it away, because look, that's, that wasn't the issue. I said to her, I don't care whose it was to tell. You had 31 years to tell me, and you didn't. And now you are terminally ill. When were you going to tell me? So, again, because I was the parent, I was interrogating her as if she was a teenager. You know, tell me what really happened. And she told me a story. I mean, she she went off on different tangents of how Marty had sent her all these love letters and how when I was born, supposedly I was another abortion planned. And the day of the abortion, Poppy Wong was the one who said, no, don't, you know, you're still married to me. This is my baby. I'll take care of this baby. Don't do it. And that's the story of how I became a along and why she wouldn't let Marty ha- lay claim to me. She told me that Marty had wanted me aborted, and that's why Marty was not allowed to be my father. And then, you know, she she embellished a lot of all the drama and the letters Marty sent her, and she ran to the Dominican Republic with me as a baby, and it was very dramatic.
3: Was her implication that Poppy knew?
0: no she insisted that poppy said i was his she would not elaborate on did he know i wasn't and even after i found all this out the person i sat down with first was my brother i sat down with in person and he begged me to not tell poppy because he was old And he had no family in the city or in the States, period. And we were it. He and I were it. And my brother begged me not to tell him. And I was, but, you know, everything should be truthful. We should be truthful. No more secrets, blah, blah, blah. But I understood what he was asking me. And I said that I would always revisit it if I changed my mind. But I really did it for my brother, not so much for Poppy. And, you know, that was important to me.
3: And so, has Poppy passed away?
0: Yeah, he passed away in June. I never told him. Yeah. There's no point.
3: (laughs) Yeah. It's so interesting the way that in the annals of secrecy and the different kinds of secrets, when we discover a secret and then we're asked to keep a secret about that secret.
0: Hmm. And that's what I didn't want to do. I didn't want to keep a secret about a secret. But I really thought about why would i be telling him and that's what my brother you know wanted me to think about and like what would it do for what purpose and the difference between the secret about me is i said to my mother you know when i confronted her about this i said the minute i was born your secret became a human being a person <laughs> a full person It became mine. I owned it because I was literally it. Because she kept saying it was hers. It was hers to say. It was hers to keep. I said, no, the minute I was born, it became mine because it was my truth. I was a person, not a thing or not something that you did. You had sex. That's something you did. You got pregnant. That's the secret. That's yours. But a person, a human being, it's theirs.
3: Lupe lives longer than the doctors had anticipated. But eventually, the cancer takes hold, and she passes away. In the aftermath, Carmen must reckon with her mother's death and the recent discoveries about her paternity while continuing to live her life. She gets married again. She becomes a mother. Her career has taken off, and she has her own television show.
0: When something like this happens in your life, you really wish that you could just stop everything just to digest it. But, of course, that couldn't happen to me. I could not stop. I was an achievement machine, mostly because I, again, supported myself. I had no safety net. So it was work, work, work. I put my head down. And I would say the biggest change, the biggest change, because nothing changed with my relationship with Poppy, Nothing changed with my relationship with my brother. If anything, you were closer. My sisters, either. But with Marty, I think the hardest thing for me to digest was the betrayal, because I had looked up to him so much. I had wanted to be one of his daughters so badly. And I would flash back to all those times when I was a little girl asking, you know, why can't I be adopted? Why can't I have your last name, the last name of the girls? Why can't I? You know, and I'm really glad it never happened, I tell you. but when you're a little kid and you're pulled out of your whole environment and your family, everyone, my whole family and everything I knew was left behind, I wanted to belong to something. And I had wanted to belong to his family or to the family I lived with. So to know that all that time he knew it was just so devastating. I just, uh, to this day, I I can't, I have trouble wrapping my hands around it. And I was angry. I was angry. Still am.
3: <laughs> the story you tell about the first night that your, your show was aired, and you ask Marty afterwards if, if he had watched.
0: Yes, which of course was finance. It was at CNBC, this was a topic that um marty and i bonded on and this is like how some you know kids talk sports with their dad i talked finance and the market and all those things and so i called him i had just written co-produced and hosted my own daily freaking national tv show it was a big deal and i called him and said what'd you think And, uh, the first thing out of his mouth was, Oh, I didn't know you could do that. Which I guess I took as a compliment because I was like, well, I didn't know I could do it either, but I did. Um, and the next thing was, he said, yeah, but you know, I can't watch it. I said, why? So it's too depressing. It's too depressing. Because my show launched right in the, the crash of 2008. And, uh, He said he just couldn't watch it. It's too depressing. That hurt badly because here's the thing. In retrospect, you know, he couldn't put his own feelings aside to be proud of his daughter or his stepdaughter. I didn't matter enough.
3: Well, it's another version of retreating, you know, behind the Wall Street Journal.
0: I think what I realized, too, besides the pain that I had that night, was our relationship was a one-way street. And... My relationship with him and, frankly, with my sisters, I'd realized, had always been a one-way street. It was always me wanting love and approval and pride and, uh, you know, connection. And the only place that I got that was my brother. My brother was my biggest cheerleader. He had a Super Bowl party that I just happened to go to his place that weekend. Not that I'm into that. I went, you know, with my daughter because our daughters were so close. And before the Super Bowl, he had to play my show for everybody on the big screen to see. And he pointed me like, "That, that's my sister. That's my sister. And it was everything to me because I did not get that from anyone else in the family. And certainly not my parents.
3: Flash forward to just two years ago. Carmen's biggest cheerleader, her loving and supportive brother, Alex, becomes sick, too. He's diagnosed with terminal cancer.
0: Two months before my brother got a um, terminal cancer diagnosis, we decided to do 23andMe. And just for fun, we're science geeks, and we also kind of wanted to make sure that all these stories in the family were true. I guess we wanted some validity to it. And let's just say taking 23 and me sent me right back into a spiral because we all did it together. And Marty was not my father either, um, which was another big blow. My daughter was in middle school and she was there. We were all FaceTiming each other, the two families, my brother's family and me and my daughter. And we were just, because <laughs> I, was, I was divorced again, and we've been on our own since she was 4 and we're sitting there on the screens just going what is happening looking at our results and my daughter just says oh mommy your life is a telenovela <laughs> <laughs> and it was so good to have children there in some way some people might think like oh my gosh you know what a scandal your children were it really grounds you when your kids are like we're here, it's going to be okay, but this is, wow, this is wild, you know, and to see it through their eyes, it really took the edge off the pain. But it also, you know, even when Marty said I was his, I got to tell you that same thing in the gut that we were talking about before with Poppy, that same feeling of there's something wrong. I had that same feeling the whole 14, 15 years that supposedly Marty was my father it didn't sit right with me. I also didn't feel like I was his. I didn't share things, a lot of things in common with him, personality-wise or these, like my sisters did. And I didn't share a lot with them either. I was just this little like moon in orbit around the family. And there you go, science went ahead and made me realize I was completely sane and we really need to listen to our guts. But two months after that, I was in Santo Domingo in the Dominican Republic on a mission with my daughter, to connect with my mother's best friend in childhood, who had known a lot of these secrets, and I had hoped would be able to tell me things. And while I was there, my sister-in-law called me from the hospital that uh, Alex had a very severe non-smoking lung cancer, which ended up being an Asian gene. Um, Speaking of genes and science, They don't always do good things, good reveals. And this one was bad. It was, um, something's been happening a lot in the Asian community lately. It's just kind of lung cancer. And of course we flew home the next day to be with him.
3: Even after he was sick, he was very keyed into wanting to help you actually, you know, for once and for all, get to the bottom of where do you come from?
0: Yes, I think for him through all of his illness and the chemotherapy. And we really bonded even closer because we felt a clock ticking again, just as my mother had cancer and the clock was ticking. And that's how I found the first reveal. His clock was ticking and we needed to solve this mystery. So we dug into old files. He contacted cousins. You know, he was bald from chemo and and weak, but we flew down with our daughters to Miami to see his godmother who was friends with our mother when she was that age to see if we could find any answers, which we didn't, but it was a wonderful trip, reconnecting with family. And we just dug and dug. We spent a lot of time sitting at his desk at his home, just trying to figure things out and talking about family. It was definitely, we needed each other at that time. He needed everyone. Desperately, and uh, I needed him and I needed him not to go.
4: Mm.
3: Were you able to discover, in fact, where you do come from while Alex was still living?
0: I was not able to find out the solution to the mystery while Alex was alive. On his deathbed, I told him because, you know, they say the last thing to go is hearing. The day before he passed i said you have got to go up there or wherever and find mom and get it out of her (laughs) you've got to shake her and get it out of her and you better come back and you better tell me what's up you had better come back to me but no he never knew i did not discover after by the way thousands of dollars to hiring genealogists and detectives and probably hundreds of hours on my own trying to find this man and led down quite a few dead ends, but interesting ones, um, which I call them the, the ghost fathers. Maybe it was this one, maybe it was that one. And and then I was in edits on the book and I hadn't gone to, you know, I had a habit back then when I first learned of refreshing 23andMe, Ancestry, and JED match every single day a couple times a day. Like I was playing a game, like a game show, you know, or like whack-a-mole, like constantly like pressing and pressing and hoping someone would show up. The purpose of the book wasn't so much to solve that mystery. The purpose was to explore, you know, why and who my mother was and, and why she would keep such a thing and make such stories and how it shaped me. I was in edits and hadn't touched those sites in probably three or four months. And I refreshed. And boop. There it was. Family.
3: There's a line in your book um, that I found so striking. You wrote, I have three fathers, but not one whole one. And that, to me, captures so much of what a discovery, or in your case, a series of discoveries like this one actually do, which is that there is a complete picture at long last, but there isn't one whole human being who you come from because you really come from from three, not one.
0: Yes. And, you know, interestingly enough, each of them, all three of them gave me something which created me. And that's what I find kind of fascinating. It's almost as if as painful as all this all is, there is a bit of thank you to the universe, I guess, that each of them gave me something. And I think that's important. Though I'll also say, interestingly enough, I'd always felt, and I said this to my brother a lot, I'd always felt that I was 100% Latina or Hispanic. And let's just say I was right. <laughs> but with a little different origin than this hemisphere. <laughs> it's another hemisphere, but also considered Hispanic. It's just really interesting how much when you look back, your gut knows, and I find that fascinating.
3: I do too. And it's such an important lesson in in trusting that gut, even if even if it doesn't make sense. Yes. Because I don't think our guts are really ever wrong.
0: Yeah. And and that's why I mentioned too. It's like, I always thought, you know, the truth will come out. If it deals with another human being, it will come out. And I have this saying, it's like, you know, when you bury the truth, you bury it alive.
3: I absolutely love that. There's much that's been written and said about secrets. But when you bury the truth, you bury it alive. Is such a vivid image and and it stays alive. It it will come out.
0: It will. It it gets noisy <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and it finds a way out. So don't bury anything.
3: Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. Molly Zakur is the story editor. And Dylan Fagan is the executive producer. If you have a family secret you'd like to share, please leave us a voicemail, and your story could appear on an upcoming episode. Our number is 1-888-SECRET-0. That's the number zero. You can also find me on Instagram, at Danny Writer. And if you'd like to know more about the story that inspired this podcast, check out my memoir, Inheritance.
5: any disease.